Hello, and welcome to another episode of the William Branham Historical Research Podcast. I'm your host, John Collins, the author and founder of William Branham Historical Research at william-branham.org. And with me, I have Steve Montgomery, researcher and author of The Converging Apostasy, a collection of thematic critiques. Steve, I've wanted to do this with you for a very long time, and we actually tried it last week, and things just didn't work out. But as you know, I have put all things Branham research on hold for a few months, and as of, uh, I guess it was week before last, I'm starting to get back into this. And um, to the audience who have are unaware, Steve is one of the people who has worked with me Gosh, I can't even remember how many years, Steve, but you were helping me connect what is William Branham's manifested sons of God to the New Apostolic Reformation, to the latter reign, and there were so many pieces of the puzzle that you had, and I had all of these scattered pieces that I really didn't know what were, (laughs) and you helped me put it all together. So I've been wanting to have you on the show, and I've been wanting to help advertise your book, The Converging Apostasy, a collection of thematic critiques, which uh, you can get on Amazon. And with that, I'll let you introduce yourself to the audience. Thank you very much, John. It's been a pleasure to uh, talk to you over the years and to have this opportunity. Well, um, a little bit about about my background is uh, in the early 80s, I began to attend a a charismatic church that was highly influenced by the Word of Faith folks. So that was Kenneth Hagin, Kenneth Copeland, etc. A little bit of Hobart Freeman thrown in there for good measure. And so after a couple of years of that, uh, through the help of some friends, uh, I was sort of like you'd say counseled out of that group. And after that, I began to help people get out of uh, what a lot of people would call religious cults or cult-like groups. So the group I worked with um, helped people get out of Sam Sam Fife's uh, The Body of Christ, also known as uh, The Move. We also helped uh, people get out of the children of God, and they have several different aliases, uh, one of which was the uh, the love family, the family of love. And uh, also we'd get people out of the Way International. And so I did that for maybe two or three years, and then I began to really, really get into the idea of was there a common thread? Was there something that these folks had in, had in, had in uh in their backgrounds and in their influences that led them to come to similar belief systems. And lo and behold, that led to the latter rain movement, which didn't answer all of my questions, but it did, it did make me uh, become aware of, as you mentioned, the manifest sons of God doctrines. And uh, through talking to, uh, to numerous people that were either pro or con on some of those beliefs, I came to realize uh, that there was actually a prophetess, uh, 17th century prophetess in England, whose name was Jane Lead, and she actually, uh, some of her works were, and her prophecies, were directly used, uh, plagiarized, borrowed from, by uh, several of the main prophets of the Lateran movement. Not all, but several of the uh, movers and shakers, if you put it that way. It's just so interesting when you think of all of the different connections to all of all of what you've been researching and all of what we've been researching. And this will probably come as a surprise to you. I don't think you and I have spoken since we uncovered this, but David Berg was a splinter group of William Branham's message cult. He was in pseudo Lateran movement. You know, his mother was a big time evangelist, but David Berg was, as you know, got into some sexual trouble in in the church he was in, and he got ousted. And William Branham prophesied over him, gave his blessing to him, basically helped David Berg get back on his feet after having the sex scandal and started his children ministry, which, as you know, turned into a a big, big mess after that. Um, 
But one of the other names you've mentioned, and I'm just going to throw this out there for the audience to help me put the pieces together, Hobart Freeman. I have researched him up and down and left and right because I'm looking for one key thing that I have not yet found. William Branham had significant mental health issues from start to finish of his ministry. And after the latter rain movement exploded and he, you know, he, he was not able to handle the stress of it all. And he actually quit early on. I want to say it was 1947 ish, maybe 49. <clears throat> well, a man named William Freeman, who is this no name evangelist. If you go look him up, you'll find absolutely nothing on this guy. William Freeman was William Branham's replacement in the Voice of Healing. Branham was the champion of the Voice of Healing movement, which merged eventually with Lateran. When Branham dropped off the scene, William Freeman became their champion. Until Branham came back, obviously, and it, you know, things changed again. I have been trying to connect, is Hobart Freeman related to William Freeman in any way? And who is this William Freeman? Where did he come from? Yeah, John, that's fascinating. As usual, uh, if anybody's new to your podcast, uh, your research is very thorough. And if there's a link to be found, I'm sure you'll find it. Uh, yeah, the Hobart Freeman thing, as I was mentioning to you earlier, uh, at the church I was attending called the Lord's Gathering in the Boston area, um, occasionally we'd have folks come out and visit. And our, our impression at that time, of course, we were all thoroughly indoctrinated in the place we were at, but our impression was that these people are so holy, so set apart, so anointed. And so we would buy tapes, uh, you know, and booklets that uh, came from uh, uh, Hobart Freeman's ministry there in Indiana, Claypool, I believe it was. But, um, but when I really got going uh, with my research into the Ladder Rain movement, which led to many, many other things, as I mentioned, Jane Lead, uh, just, just kind of working backwards. But it eventually, lo and behold, led to, um, uh, someone who's extremely influential in what scholars call uh, Western, Western esotericism, and that is the second century Gnostic Valentinus. Uh, there were numerous other uh, Gnostics, but uh, I'll get to the reason why I focused on him. So Valentinus has had an, an just an amazingly uh, uh, pronounced influence over, as I said, esotericism. Some people like to avoid the word occult or new age because they think, oh boy, this is going to be another conspiracy theory, and they discount the, uh, the actual uh, content of what you're saying. But let me put it this way. Valentinus, according to scholars, was highly influenced by Plato, uh, by the mystery religions, and by several uh, several key scriptures from the Apostle Paul, which he spiritualized and made into things that they weren't intended to mean. And if we move on from there, from Valentinus in the second century, uh, you get movements like Neoplatism, uh, you get Kabbalah, you get, uh, uh, I'm not sure if I pronounce this right, uh, I've never heard anybody say it, Jacoim uh, of uh, Fiore. Uh, and then all of those uh, currents, uh, and there's there's numerous uh, doctrinal uh, con commonalities that those groups have, even though they're very diverse and spread out through history. Uh, but all of those things from Valentinus on through the people I just mentioned uh, sort of arrived at, uh, and, uh, and this is, <laughs> most people say, Jacob, Boeum, okay, that's the Texas way of pronouncing it. But no, it's, a, it's German, so I think it's Jacob uh, Boim, something like that, something close to that. And what happened, uh, he was what, what uh, most people would say the spiritual mentor of, uh, of Jane Lead, who led the uh, Philadelphian Society in England. Okay, the big, big question might be, so what? Uh, well, the so what is... As the latter rain movement began in 1948, as you know, John, up in Canada, uh, not everybody went uh, 
head over heels for the uh, Manifest Sons of God doctrines. As a matter of fact, they had to kind of develop as the movement went on. Uh, but I can list these these guys they call the Big Four <clears throat> because they're so influential and so, so highly influenced by Jane Lee. Those would be George Hodden, who you know his significance uh, in the latter reign. Uh, also Bill Britton, uh, I think in some ways the most influential. Then there was Royal Conquest, who is John Robert Stevens' right-hand man, uh, considered a prophet and apostle of the latter reign, who kind of went off to his own, uh, his own ends and uh, formed his cult called the Living, um, excuse me, the, the Walk, Church of the Living Word. And then the final one out of the big four is J. Preston Eby. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. So those four folks either directly mention Jane Lead in their writings and their taped uh, messages, or it uh, can be discerned very easily. Uh, for example, I talked to Bill Britton's daughter about this, and she says, oh, yeah, uh, he has a little tract here that he produced, and it's called A Prophecy Out of the Past, and it's, a, it's directly from Jane Lead. So, having said that, we get to another, so what? That was in 1948. Here's so what. Really, it's like links of a chain, right? One person has some kind of bad theology, but realizes that, hey, there's a lot of money or coinage back then in doing this thing that I'm doing. And then somebody else takes it and they run with it. Mix in with this mental health issues, like you said, Gnosticism. What's really funny is I came to researching Jane, Jane Lead about the same time I had um, came in contact with you. But I came from the opposite angle. I was at the time researching Christian identity, and at that time, I had not yet realized that Christian identity developed because of British Israelism, which is the tie to the UK, obviously. But I was starting with Irenaeus because Irenaeus condemned the whole the whole foundation of Christian identity doctrine, the two seed bloodlines mating with the serpent, all of this was condemned by the very first Christian apologist, <laughs> Irenaeus. And <clears throat> that led me into a deep study of Gnosticism. And from Gnosticism, I landed in Alexandria, which, as you know, Valentinus was in Alexandria. <clears throat> but I got sidetracked because I discovered this character named Heron. They call him Hero of Alexandria. And uh, you don't know this about me, but I am in, uh, deep into scientific things. I like to experiment and build things. <laughs> when I was a kid, when my parents would give me a radio, I would take it apart to see what made it tick and auto mechanics. <laughs> I've done all kinds of things. But <clears throat> I discovered Hero, Hero of Alexandria. And this was a guy that he was nothing more than a chemist, a... Uh, it was a scientist of sorts, but he was well ahead of his time. He knew pneumatics, hydraulics, and they would pay him to go into the pagan temples and bring the deities of gold or stone to life. And one of the most fascinating inventions that he made was the priest would go under the temple and they would light this fire under this big vat of wine and the fire would heat the wine causing it to expand and then he had these tubes that went up to the eyes of the deity in the in the temple so they go light the fire they'd be preaching and say here's our deity and then you know halfway through the sermon the deity starts crying what looks like blood but it's actually wine it's just hydro it's just pneumatics right he's just you know you it, it's crazy fascinating. But anyway, long story short, all of that trail led me from the opposite side to Jane Lead. So you've got this trail directly from Gnosticism to Jane Lead. And then I discovered that Charles Price, um, who was – he's a figure that's not well-known. William Branham mentioned him. Branham was connected to Price and some of Price's following. But Price – 
was also deeply connected to Amy Simple McPherson. And I don't know that you and I've had this conversation either since my research, but McPherson was, I found one newspaper article where it declared that the Foursquare Church was actually funding the operation at Sharon Orphanage, which is a direct tie to Lateran. You've got Gordon Lindsay, who was working with Amy, Amy Sipple McPherson. You've also got, um, oh, what's his name? Wesley Swift. He is the key figure in Christian identity. He was trained in Amy Sipple McPherson's Bible school, among other schools, obviously. <clears throat> and Gordon Lindsay was speaking in British Israel conferences in both Canada and in, um, what is it, Washington State, I think, different places. So they're all connected, right? And when you follow that trail, those, those links of people all the way back, like you said, it goes directly back to Jane Lead, but then, as I found and as you found, it goes all the way back to just pure Gnosticism. That's what this movement was built upon. Yeah, again, John, that's uh, that super uh, job of connecting some of the, uh, the dots there. And um, what that led me to is if I, if I stop with the, the prophets of the latter rain in that chain, and mentioning the four, what I call the big four, then um, those folks uh, became a big influence on what what some called the, the kingdom message of the 1980s primarily. That would have been Earl Polk, uh, Bob Wiener, John and Ann Jimenez or Jimenez. And from them, they influence the NAR, but especially if you go to Bill Hammond. Bill Hammond's really key in the NAR because uh, C. Peter Wagner would refer to him as, uh, as sort of the doctrinal fount of all infamy. No, he didn't say that, but uh, but of a lot of the, the doctrinal uh, foundations for the NAR. So what I did in my research was I took it upon myself and it's pretty much the the mid uh, early to mid eighties. I did uh, approximately twenty phone calls, and I had a little. This is back in the day of the old fashioned telephone, like so. And I put a little suction cup on on uh, on the receiver to uh, to record what I was saying and what their responses were. And I wanted to find out the doctrinal um, issues that they stood upon, uh, primarily eschatology. So, in end of all things. So here's what happened. I I can whittle this down to maybe the short, easy version of it. Out of the 20 calls that I made, the eschatology of all of those 20 who had links to Lateran, but especially Manifest Sons of God doctrines, they all, uh, except for two, uh, answered my question in the affirmative. Here's my question. Is it true that the uh, the perfected church, the manifest sons of God, the new man, all of these different terms that they have for essentially the same thing, is it true that they or we uh, will be the means through which a perfected church and some of them hedge on that and say, oh, no, it's just becoming complete. Well, essentially, if you look at what they're talking about, it's like uh, – perfection, glorification, etc. Is it true that that segment of the elite followers of Christ will politically take dominion, as they say, see, see Peter Wagner changed that up a little bit, uh, but essentially it means the same thing. Take dominion politically and then, quote, rule and reign with Christ or for Christ and then carry out what I refer to as a sacred purge. Okay, what's a sacred purge? It's uh, executing the literal written judgments of God. So does that mean that the elite will point fingers and say, ooh, you're so bad, you're not following God? Uh, no, it doesn't mean that. What I found in my 20, uh, 20 interviews was that 18 out of 20 said literally, that the the wicked, meaning most people that they define as being wicked, 
and those in the church who do not kind of get with uh, the end time move of God, they will literally be removed by us. And here, here's what several people called a kingdom principle. Uh, kingdom principle went like this. Um, anything and everything that will happen from now to the end of eternity will be accomplished in, through, and with the corporate body of Christ. So I pressed uh, these folks in the interviews and I said, well, uh, that really means removing people physically, uh, i.e. killing them. And uh, they would say yes uh, and give uh, various uh, scriptures they felt to back up and support this, this concept. So who did I hear that from? I heard that directly from Bill Britton's ministry, directly from Sam Fife's ministry. Um, now, Sam, Sam, Fife, Sam Fife was already uh, deceased at the time I called, so his right-hand man, uh, Buddy Cobb, answered. A um, couple of folks from Bill Britton's ministry. I talked to associate pastors at um, Earl Polk's church, uh, also at... Uh, uh, Ann and uh, John and Ann uh, Jimenez's church, and then a host of uh, other folks. So I talked. I talked to George Houghton numerous times by phone, and then he would write out long uh, written letters in the old days before we, had, when everything was still snail mail. He he would write those things up. Okay, and so coming to that conclusion that these things were actually not uh, some sort of idea that Jesus, angels, God would exercise the, the judgment day, which is pretty much what Orthodox Christians would believe. That's uh, what we say is uh, uh, respecting the providence of God, that he's the one that handles those things. Having come to this conclusion, I, I would talk to various people who I thought would be just way interested in learning this and doing something about it. Maybe people that had a little bit more clout than I did. Uh, I was just Joe Blow, researcher. Uh, so I called Spiritual Counterfeits. Uh, I called the Christian Research Institute. Uh, kind of no-go with any of those folks who said, oh, yeah, we know about the manifest sons of God. Yeah, they sort of believed that, but no, you're probably misunderstanding. And I was already completely aware that I was not misunderstanding. I found a couple of folks who said, yeah, yeah, Steve, that's exactly what they say. Isn't that terrible? Uh, okay. So uh, that led me to even, even some other things, which I can go into uh, shortly. So here's where I get really excited. <laughs> you continue to go forward with your research and making all of these connections. <clears throat> and I keep going backwards. I keep starting at Laterane and then going backwards. And what's interesting is we're both converging again. And that's, that's honestly, that's why I'm excited to have you on the podcast today. <clears throat> we've been, <laughs> we've been deeply diving into not just Christian identity, because that was the, the, you know, the structure of what we believed, but the reason for the manifested sons of God, we've been trying to understand because all along I have said, this is a political cult. This is not a religious cult. It is simply a political cult disguised in religion. <clears throat> and it wasn't until Charles and I, in our historical podcast, we started piecing all of this together and we finally stumbled on, wait a minute, I know what this is. <laughs> and it all ties back to the British Israelism I, I mentioned earlier. There was this theme that was created. It was, you know, it was created in the 1800s in England, but it came into the United States. It was this theme that the people with white skin of the British Isles were the direct descendants of King David <clears throat> and that they were the true Jews. And all of these people who say they're Jews and all of these other races, they're, 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 not the, they're not the Jews. We're the children of Israel. And then later it developed into this notion that the British Isles were of one tribe of the children of Israel and the United States and Canada were the other. And then that came into the United States through a um, – I'm drawing a blank on the guy's name. 
uh, Hein, I think it was, but there's a lot of money to be made with this, right? <laughs> so he, he comes in the United States with speaking engagements and <clears throat> book sales, whatnot. Well, he influenced this guy named C.A.L. Totten, and Totten was a military guy. And now you've got the, you know, the children of Israel combined with the end of days theology combined with militarization of the United States. Well, our armies, <laughs> it's a bad mix. Our armies are now the, the armies of the children of God. Well, he influenced one Frank Sanford, who I'm sure I'm certain you know the name, but for our audience, <clears throat> Sanford was the leader of a very destructive cult in Maine that was one of two cult compounds that Charles Fox Parham, the founder of Pentecostalism, visited to model his own following after. He visited Parham, who Parham actually taught C.A.L. Totten's theology in his school, in his compound. Parham also went to John Alexander Dowie, who was also a British Israelite. <clears throat> Dowie had the notion that he was going to just go outright by Jerusalem for the kingdom of God, and <laughs> they were going to reestablish the throne there. <clears throat> but this developed into this weird thing when you get in towards the latter reign and the manifested sons of God, because Totten influenced Parham. Parham was teaching in Amy Simple McPherson's church and schools and um People like Wesley Swift, who I mentioned, these were direct influences of Parham for the British Israel doctrine. Gordon Lindsay, William Branham's campaign manager, was a speaker at the Anglo-Saxon Federation conferences of British Israelism. <clears throat> here's, where it gets inter here's where it gets interesting. Gordon Lindsay joined into this thing at the moment in which British Israel doctrine started twisting to become racial doctrine. Because you remember in the 20s, the Ku Klux Klan was growing. So now you've got this notion that we with the white skin are the children of God. Well, in, in the United States, at the time, the Klan is widely popular. Well, suddenly those people with black skin, those must be the evil race. Those must be the demons that are coming to take over and overthrow the United States government is what it actually ended up to be. So you've got Totten's militaristic, very, very political version of the British Israel doctrine combining with the white supremacy. And when this merged together, there was a notion that we need to reestablish the kingdom of God on the throne in the White House. And we are going to start a religious revolution, basically. <clears throat> and the reason I'm, the point I'm building up to this, a lot of people don't realize this, but C. Peter Wagner, who, you know, you've mentioned him and we've got some research published on him. He published a book called Our Kind of People, the most racist book in the history of all of this. He is talking about how the civil rights movement just destroyed the culture of the black people. And in his own words, the civil rights movement caused a distinct change in the attitude of American blacks towards their own cultural values in general and toward their churches in particular. What happened to black churches during the 60s was not unlike the process of indigenation that occurred in scores of cultures around the world where Christianity has been introduced. He was all for segregating the people. And George Houghton, who is one of the other figures you mentioned, one of the big four, he had a very, very, very racist Christian identity view. And he got called out for it in his publication entitled The Living Creature, The Origin of the Negro. And it's it's a horrific book, but what they're what they're teaching, <clears throat> this is manifested sons of God, but more to the point, this is the racist form of British Israelism, which was developing into Christian identity, which spawned the neo-Nazis, the I could go on for hours talking about what that created. 
but from a religious standpoint, this was the merging of militarized political weaponization of religion through Totten with the Lateran movement. When that came together, it created the NAR. That's, that's again, uh, fascinating, John. I really appreciate all the good work you're doing. A couple of things you mentioned um, that I want to take up on, uh, if I can. That is, you mentioned um, the the very clear, the very clear um, jumps, moves, influences into uh, anti-Semiticism and uh, and just you know pure racism and hate. It's what I didn't mention earlier, but it's part of part of the book I wrote and part of the research is that obviously there's many many different themes. Uh, through which you can trace uh, basically what the, the teachings of false prophets are. But, but having looked at um, the earlier folks, as you mentioned, moving backwards towards Valentinus, looking at some of his ideas and then those that, that progressed from him, from his influence, and that eventually leads to the, the big two, which is... Uh, Helena Blatsvaga, excuse me, <laughs> Blavansky, and also Alice Beatty. Uh, and then even folks like Alistair Crowley. Um, those, those folks exhibit some similar themes. And so this is why I mentioned, um, well, as part of my book, it's the, the convergence, the converging apostasy. Uh, so thematically, I see, I, I identified 10 essential themes that are present from everyone from Valentinus on through all of the, uh, the Western air uh, esotericism. Um, all of those themes, there's 10 that I found, uh, principal themes, and they're paralleled in um, what began or was, uh, I, re I really think of uh, Jen Lead as a, a conduit. Um, as a focal point, those same, team, same 10 themes show up again and then are passed on through those who, whom she influenced. Okay, so um, I, I may not go into all of the 10 themes, but uh, the principal ones, and John, you'll see why, why these are very valid. Uh, let's, let's start with uh, Jane Lee, and maybe we'll go backwards to Valentinus and those whom he influenced more directly. So if you, if you start with Jane Lead, then uh, the idea, uh, here's one of my central themes, um, recurring, it's like a recurring nightmare, essentially, is ongoing revelation. Okay, so yeah, sure, we believe in the Bible, and uh, oh yeah, it's, it's the final word of God. Well, no, not really, because we have prophets who are getting new revelations, and who are opening up the word of God in these end times. So I, I know you, you've heard that kind of stuff ad infinitum. So that would have been one of my themes. So uh, kind of a partner in crime with that theme is extra biblical revelations. So all of these guys and girls uh, do that. And again, it's, uh, it's, it's after a while, it's like, oh, yeah, no surprise. Where do they find those extra revelations? It's not really through a hotline to God. It's more through exposure to, sometimes in a secondary kind of fashion, exposure to some of those same old doctrines that have been around since, since Valentinus and all the people after him. Okay, so those are two uh, start-off doctrines that are really, really uh, a problem, problematic. Okay. Does that lead us to? That leads us actually to the Garden of Eden because pretty much the third, and I would say the driving um, uh, theme of what I call the converging apostasy. The third one is what I call deification based on the original big lie. Okay, we can kind of figure what that is if we look at our Bibles. Uh, you will be as gods. Okay. So numerous takes on exactly what that means, but all of these folks have some sort of angle on that. Um, that leads to a couple of things that I mentioned earlier. If in any way, shape, or fashion, 
you think that the corporate body of Christ or the individual um, followers of uh, the numerous esoteric groups, if you believe that you're going to be deified, then it naturally follows that you would be like the, uh, uh, what did Plato call it, the, uh, the king prophets. You know, you'll be, you'll be able, enabled to be in charge of the other folks who aren't quite as spiritually as advanced, advanced as you are. Okay, so it's that, that rulership idea, dominion, and uh, politically speaking, the, the word the, uh, theocracy is thrown about quite a bit. The new order, the theocracy, et cetera, the new age. You see that with numerous prophets of the, the manifest sons of God's doctrines and ministries. And then the third, uh, even goes back to Valentinus, is this, uh, this great purge where the, the, uh, the ones that don't quite make it spiritually, uh, they're done away with. Okay, so at first, uh, I found that uh, Valentinus, uh, no, he's talking about, you know, kind of like universal salvation, which, which you're probably aware Jane Lead uh, passed that one on to numerous folks. And, of course, the, the New Age groups and the, uh, all of the esoteric groups uh, that we talked about also talk about universal salvation. But it comes with a caveat, and here's how it goes. Yes, everybody's going to be perfected. But some people won't quite make it in the first round. In other words, they get taken out of the way, and either they're going to be reincarnated, that's one way that some people approach this, or, and you hear this, this is directly mentioned by Royal Cronquist and Wesley Swift, um, they will be saved, but as by fire, which is an allusion to a biblical scripture, you know, turning over to Satan so that the destruction of the flesh will preserve the soul. And so they kind of like had their cake and eat it too. Uh, oh yeah, you know, God's gonna like save everybody, but uh, we're gonna kind of be in control of how that happens. Okay, obviously a big issue. So going through those themes, uh, it actually led to another couple of themes. Uh, like I said, I won't go deeply into them, but uh, let's see here. Ah, how, now this has always been a big issue with Manifest Sons of God teachers. How are we going to become perfected? Is it through praying real hard a lot? Is it through separating ourselves from those other kind of lowly Christians? Uh, how does this really occur? Well, this is another, another issue that uh, people kind of raise their eyebrows and say, are you kidding me? No, I'm not kidding you. Uh, if you go back to Valentinus, perfection and sinlessness comes through bodily receiving your personal angel. And he had different words for this. He would say angel. He would say um, uh, the bridegroom. It, but he was, he was not talking about Jesus Christ specifically. He was saying each person has their own um, bridegroom up in what he called the pleroma. Uh, which is similar to what some people call the uh, the great cloud of witnesses, similar to what people in the New Age movement uh, following uh, uh, Alice Bailey, that tradition, they would call it uh, the individual members of the spiritual hierarchy. And again, that's got a long, long history uh, throughout the esoteric world. Okay, so how does how does perfection come? It comes to union with those folks. Now, I saw that very, very directly through Royal Cronquist. I saw that uh, implied very subtly through Bill Britton, and I talked to his daughter about this. Uh, he refers to this as God's two armies, and these, he totally stole this from uh, Jane Lead. Uh, okay, God's two armies. You got uh, one in the heavenlies. Okay, those are the angels, or else they're the great cloud of witnesses, whatever you want to say. And then we've got the, 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 the perfected or what will be perfected uh, body of Christ on earth. Uh, and then what happens is in the great consummation of all things in the end times, these two armies will meet. Well, is that specific? Is that general? Oh, they'll meet and they'll to judgment day. No. What a lot of these folks literally say 
is that they will come into union. And again, in the esoteric world, this is spelled out pretty clearly. You know, you got all the way from the uh, uh, the spiritual hierarchy ideas, the ascended masters ideas. And you also have, you know, all the new age folks talking about channeling this or that entity. Uh, but then you get more uh, the big picture, which is, well, how would we, this is what I was getting at, how will we become perfected uh, through the numerous, numerous different ways of saying exalted beings from angels to uh, spirits in the hierarchy, union with them and through uh, them working through. And this is why I call this a symbiotic relationship uh, because um, they gain, and you might have recalled seeing this in, in Wesley Swift's writings and others, they, and probably uh, Jim Jones and Branham also, they gain perfection by having our bodies, I know this sounds bizarre, uh, to become incarnate and uh, the body of Christ on earth, uh, the individual members of the body of Christ would gain their perfection through obviously uh, higher beings than themselves, than their mortal bodies. So this became one of the, the issues that began to circulate in the, granted, in the very, very deep end of the pool, if you want to put it that way, of the manifest sons of God teachers. Right. And that was, <laughs> for me, that's where things just went a very unusual direction. <clears throat> I'm a science fiction fan, if you can't tell it, <clears throat> right right behind me in every one of my podcasts, I have the Millennium Falcon from Star Wars. Um, <clears throat> I, I'm a big science fiction fan, and people who are in this cult and its splinter groups, they, <laughs> they often ridicule me for my science fiction background, but... They don't realize just how close this comes to science fiction. And you mentioned Jim Jones, you mentioned Wesley Swift. Well, out of British Israelism and more towards the Christian identity side, they developed pure themes of Gnosticism where there was a being that was out there in the universe that you were supposed to be living on this earth to channel and be the, you know become the fulfillment of and what happened was and it, the timing is just really interesting at the moment in which the latter rain movement was birthed <clears throat> that is the same exact time in which the flying saucer craze <laughs> began to spread throughout the united states and these guys began claiming that there were these celestial being you can look up the the transcripts of Jim Jones, you can hear him saying this almost verbatim. There were these celestial beings, and I am a manifestation of that being. And the higher I become in my spiritual plane, the greater my manifestation of that being becomes. That was a core doctrine in the Branham movement. Everything that splintered from the Branham movement developed this. But what shocked me was to learn that this, although... For me, it originated with Branham. For the world, it did not. These were central themes in Christian identity as the height of racism was being birthed in the United States. They were claiming the same thing. You can go to Wesley Swift's archives and you can look at his UFO flying saucer theology because what they were trying to say is we are so much higher than the people with black skin that we're not even of this world. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, John, that is exactly true. And you saw my reactions like, <laughs> you've seen this too. Um, yeah, so the how-to, the nitty-gritty, the practical uh, way of how do we become perfect? What sets us apart uh, essentially is, you know, we're, we're from another world. Well, that is so clearly expressed in the esoteric world. Uh, but yes, it did find its way into the esoterically infused Christian world, if you want to put it that way. Um, and there's more, okay, if you go if you go to Bill Hammond, what a fascinating fellow. Uh, Bill Hammond, when I was uh, doing my interviews, he was by far the most willing to totally spill the beans. He would tell him, oh yeah, that means this, that means this. And he went on and on and on. And uh, he talked. He talked about uh, the three central themes. I'm talking about the uh, obviously he did uh, ongoing revelations. He's a prophet. 
And, um, but the one about uh, rule and reign with Christ, you know, he, he was quoting all the same manifest sons of God angles on scripture. And then taking dominion, yes, he's full of that. And then the literal purge. And so what uh, Bill Hammond told me when I asked these questions about it, is that really what our role as Christians in the end times will be? He goes, without you know missing a bead, he says, well, well, yeah, uh, what's it in the Old Testament where uh, they wouldn't chop off the heads? Uh, I don't know, I forget which scripture he's referring to, but one of the ones that had to do with judgment of, uh, of the ungodly. And he says, and then he's kind of parroting his critics. He says, well, you might say, <laughs> I don't know if you've heard that so many times too. He says, well, some will say uh, that that's in the Old Testament. Well, what I say is, what about when Peter spoke the word of judgment and they fell dead at his feet? And then he says, whether you cut their heads off or whether you uh, speak the word of judgment, Death is death, any way you look at it. And then he gave a really sinister laugh. And so I said, oh, yeah, okay, I get it. I see where you're coming from. And so for his big, big influence in the NAR, um, you know, you can track it with all those, I call them um, uh, self-anointing um, uh, conferences of infamy or whatever. You know, there's a million ways to look at it sardonically. But through all those conferences and in relationships with other prophets and apostles of the NAR, um, he has kind of subtly spread some of that stuff. And nowadays, what I hear more often, um, so some of the like the leftover odor of that stuff is you still breathe it, uh, but it comes out as like better watch out. There might be a civil war where Christians rise up and support Trump. Excuse me, I said that word, didn't I? Um, but that's that's literally what they're talking about. So, and you know, it's all you 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 continually hear that sort of thing from like his underlings, which would be like Cindy Jacobs, another prominent prophet in the NAR, and uh, Bickle, Mike Bickle, and who's the other one, uh, Rick Joyner. They're all into that kind of uh, slightly modified and slightly euphemistically termed. Uh, judgments, literal judgments that will be carried out through the sons of God. They just, they, they realize that those are kind of controversial things to say, so they kind of have to hem and haul and represent it, uh, baptize it, if you will, so that it will, you know, the deep, uh, and actually I was told that by, by, uh, him and in, in his own words, uh, that these are deep things of God. And, you know, he says, here, well, here's a paraphrase of what he said. He says, yeah, you know, it's so it's so revolutionary that some people just can't accept it, <laughs> meaning they'll think you're a heretic, perhaps, or a lunatic, perhaps. Uh, yeah. Right. I, <laughs> I, I laughed whenever you mentioned the political name that shall not be named. But <clears throat> when you look at the themes of what's going on in the United States now, not just in the political world, but also in the religious world, you can take, just like we've done with all of this research of all of these building blocks of bad theology, you can trace all of these things all the way back to the trails that we're mentioning. To the extent one of the key figures we're about to introduce into our podcast, the historical podcast, is a guy named Gerald L. K. Smith, who had the America First Party which launched about the same time as either that or the Christian Nationalism Party. He had he had both of those parties. But at the same time the latter reign was being birthed, he was launching basically the this Christian nationalist movement is what it developed into. And you look at that and you think, well, that's off to the side. He's a political guy, even though he is a minister. He has nothing to do with the latter reign because he's a disciples of christ minister but remember these were political cults disguised as religious cults and the british israel framework advertised itself as interdenominational. we don't care who you are as long as you're part of our white supremacy body we don't care who you are and the connections to smith are unbelievable 
Smith <laughs> Smith launched his claim to fame in Shreveport, Louisiana, right where William Branham's headquarters was. I, I don't want to give away too many of the secrets because we're about to explore it in our podcast, but let's just say the trails to white supremacy are unbelievable. And as you mentioned, without the manifested sons of God theology, which was birthed from the same thing, none of this that we're talking about today would even exist. Yeah, well, it's always what you say leads to like numerous uh, ways. Ooh, that brings up this and this and this. But let me say this is uh, you mentioned uh, the year 1948. You may be aware, actually I have a, a segment in my, in my book, which uh, kind of in the vernacular, I, uh, I said, because I don't pretend to be a scholar, although I use scholarly information and, and text. Uh, I said, so what's up with 1948? And so you get, to, as you mentioned, you get the ufology uh, kind of stuff happening. Obviously, the latter rain. Swift brings this up. He says, um, do, the, do the Gnostic Gospels, which were recently uncovered, do they verify Christian identity? Huh, looks like he thinks so. Um, and, or validate, he said. And um, another thing, if you're going to that other uh, spiritual cousins in the esoteric world, uh, one of the really central uh, books that Alice Beatty wrote, and I mean, she, if your listeners don't know this, she specifically says that she's working and uh, trying to introduce concepts to the to the esoteric world that will prepare for the reappearance of the Christ in what she calls the externalization of the spiritual hierarchy. Well, as I looked at this and I began to think, I said, huh. They're already, and this would take too long to explain, there's already uh, bridges between the esoteric world and the manifest sons of God teachers, some through their ongoing revelations where they kind of arrive at the same conclusions, others through actual literal connections where somebody says, hey, manifest sons of God, they're sort of like us New Agers. Let's support them, get into what they're doing, and vice versa, some manifest sons of God saying, well, they kind of believe like what we do, but, oh, yeah, but we like the Bible. And so they sort of have a difference. Anyway, 1948, also Israel becomes a state. Also, Alice Bailey writes uh, the reappearance of the Christ, and she also writes the externalization of the hierarchy. If you look at externalization of the hierarchy and what that term is talking about, it comes out to sound very much like what people in the uh, sonship move or present truth move call the manifestation of the sons of God. So in other words, you have these higher entities, beings, or perfected versions of us uh, lowly mortals. Uh, and, and the esoteric world and the so-called Christian world that's infused with this kind of stuff come to the same conclusion. Okay. Back to Valentinus, if I may, for, for a very quick moment here. Valentinus actually, according to the esoteric world, and this comes this comes from Aleister Crowley, very notorious, as we know, if people looked at him. Uh, Aleister Crowley calls Valentinus a saint. He also calls Jane Leeds' uh, spiritual mentor, Jacob Bowen. He's a saint. Interesting. Uh, and if you look at uh, Helen, Helena Blavatsky, she says that Valentinus was the greatest of all Gnostics. Okay, that's interesting also. Well, what do we learn from Valentinus? From my idea of having 10 thematic um, uh, themes, well, that's redundant, isn't it? 10 different themes through which to uh, analyze uh, all these. Uh, apostate uh, versions of, of whatever they're thinking is the truth. You can get all 10 of them through Valentinus without listing all of them. Uh, uh, secret Gnosis. Okay, well, that's where uh, you're getting these extra biblical ideas, etc., from on high, the revelations you're getting. But a couple of things that I know would be very uh, high interest to you, John, if you don't know or haven't heard this already, Valentinus introduced what he thought were two uh, new sacraments. 
So he actually held to at least a form of other sacraments that, uh, you know, Orthodox Christians would, would agree with. But he added to those two, um, uh, two more uh, sacraments. One, which he called the sacrament of redemption. Huh, sounds like Christianity being redeemed, etc. No. Uh, Irenaeus, who you mentioned, actually analyzed what Valentinus was talking about. And it's actually uh, the sacrament of um, renunciation. He's renouncing the hold that the Jewish God Jehovah has on you so that you may progress spiritually and become uh, divine through union with your bridegroom slash like slash personal angel. Okay. So there you have that perfectionist idea, which the esoteric world really loves. They call it the great work. Uh, you know, that concept has been around forever. And um, you also have uh, his other sacrament called uh, the bridal chamber. So anybody who's read about esoteric stuff, uh, this is a fairly common idea. Essentially, it's like this. They, hate, they take the idea, which was um, um, a part of the, uh, you know, the ancient world where, where uh, literal sexual union between a priestess and a, a stand-in for one of the gods would be performed, and they thought that this would honor the gods, bring blessings, uh, your crops would grow, and so on and so on. And so Valentinus based his ideas somewhat on that. But what he said was the bridal chamber is for perfection because it's all about union. Get it? Uh, yes. Uh, the esoteric world, Kabbalah, uh, and the Gnostic ideas from Valentinus, highly sexualized. Uh, that's just the way they roll. And so anyway, what else did it do? The bridal chamber um, uh, led to any of those extreme ideas which Alistair Crowley and others picked up about uh, what they frankly call uh, sex magic. And let me spell that for you. Okay, so you've got that. And how did, how did the racism thing have a precedent set by volunteers? Well, here's, here's what he, he did. Um, with that thing about the redemption, he, he also he said that uh, it, you know, it's a renunciation of God, uh, at least Jehovah, that version of God. But um, it also set the precedent for racist ideas about who's in and who's not in. And you can actually look at comments from Blavatsky and others uh, that that could be another whole uh, podcast, as you know, John, uh, looking at the ideas that were prevalent in pre-Nazi Germany. Uh, some of the societies, uh, many that had influences from Blavatsky, uh, just very clearly uh, states uh, things that, uh, I mean, it sounds like Christian identity. Right. And, you know, Christian identity racism, the way it's developed in the United States, none of it can exist without that basis in Gnosticism. It is literally taking the gospel of Jesus Christ, where whosoever will can be saved because Jesus died for you. It's the gospel in its simplicity. Well, they've turned it into there were two bloodlines that entered the earth, one of them good, one of them bad. And if you're of that good bloodline, well, you're saved. And if you're not, well, there's not much chance for you. How does that fit within the gospel? <clears throat> and the problem, you know, for me, as I'm unraveling all of this that was programmed in my head, I kept coming back to this one single question. How can they take a Bible verse and twist it so badly out of context that it means absolutely nothing like what the chapter said, right? Well, when you factor in British Israelism and what developed into Christian identity based on this theme, you start to realize that the Bible itself doesn't really matter to them because what they believe is that this is the new Israel. <clears throat> this is the we're in the new Bible days. We're in the manifested sons of God days. And 
they take that one single verse where it talks about these these were a shadow of the things to come they have twisted that so far out of context that what they believe actually is that when you read a passage from the old testament it was a shadow for what we are now and so let's invent this new thing and let's call it the bible and so you ended up in the manifested sons of god days with spoken word revelations and they in fact they use that as a phrase and in some of their business entities they called it that you know the the Branham organization is called the Voice of God Recordings, and its publications, its books, is the spoken word. Jim Jones used the spoken word, and they've all got this, you know, Kenneth Hagen, the the Rima. It's they've all got this phrase that means we can create this new thing. It's new and exciting, and signs, wonders. And I kept coming back to that one single verse that said, "An evil and adulterous sign." Uh, evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. They did not care. They did not care. They wanted to make the signs wonders. Wow, we'll amaze you. Step right up. (laughs) Step right up, folks. They even had William Branham traveling with the levitating boy, David Walker. (laughs) They don't care, right? So I, you know, like I said, I'm I'm so glad we got together and started putting all this this research together because you have helped me tremendously in helping to understand what this was that was programmed into my head and where it came from. Likewise, John. Um, I really appreciate all your help. Uh, I mean, specifically, I, I, if you if your listeners don't know this, I would I would text John and expect, oh, well, maybe in a week or so he'll get back and. I would have a very specific question. Did Brandon ever say this? And he would give me chapter and verse, uh, like probably on the same day or the next day. Uh, just has real extensive memory. I would well, knowledge, but you must have a very good memory, John. Um, and I have to say, um, you probably feel this every time you do a podcast. I'm going, wow, we didn't say this yet. We didn't say this yet. And there's so much more um, that would hopefully... Uh, make your listeners Christian and non-Christian, because I think if somebody was not a Christian and heard some of this, uh, hopefully it would say, well, that's not what Christianity is, and they would see the um, the opposite. Now, I, I can't remember where I heard this, but uh, there's theology. Uh, some of the early church fathers um, would implement, which is sort of showing the negative in order to prove what the positive is. I don't know if that's a perfect way of exegesis, but um, in other words, this is not what God is like. This is not Christ. This is not salvation. However, by looking at that, you can see perhaps an inroad to what is um, a legitimate um, saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Absolutely. And my mind just thinks like this. I I have the mind of an architect. So whenever I'm trying to prove a point, I prove what the point is not. And I don't always (laughs) I don't always get it right. You know, sometimes I will go down a path and I'll say, whatever is the theory, I was trained to believe X. Well, I want to go back and examine well what about why what what is the polar opposite of this you know that's just how my mind thinks and by doing so you can rule out the what is false by trying to prove the false if it can't be proven and it is truly false well what else is associated to the false and that's why my mind just goes that direction so well this this has been great fun and i'm going to talk to you after this and hope Hopefully, you'll do some more episodes like this, because I'm certain this is going to fascinate our listeners. But before we end it, I want to ask um, you to tell our listeners again about your book, where you can find it, where they can get it, and make sure that they're aware that your book exists. Yes, thank you very much, John. Uh, How you would find that book is it's on Amazon Books. It's called The Convergent Apostasy, colon, a collection of thematic critiques by Stephen, that's Stephen with a PH, the biblical spelling, Stephen Montgomery. Um, I have a little uh, thing to throw in there is that uh, not being a whiz at uh, computer uh, stuff like John is, uh, I uh, uploaded the uh, the version, said yes, ready to go. And uh, 
I got the sample copy of it and I said, oh, the formatting is not so wonderful. There's a gap like so when it should be like so. Uh, I did find a couple of misspelling issues and some slight grammar issues. Um, maybe John has the same issue is that uh, having uh, a fair amount of knowledge in a certain area, you have to really watch out for run-on sentences or else not run-on sentences, but highly complex sentences that could be maybe divided up in two or three portions. So what, I, what I'm actually working on right now and just about done with is a second edition. So uh, if you don't mind those little uh, tiny uh, issues, I think the content would be very informative, uh, very eye-opening, and would lead you to ask further questions. Uh, but the second edition will be much more uh, manageable. This book is uh, 468 pages approximately. It's got at least uh, five or six pages worth of uh, the work cited uh, all over the place. And um, what I'm actually going to do after I finish this second edition is produce a much, much shorter um, version um, of these ideas, which essentially is going to focus on uh, perfectionism, dominionism, and eliminationism through all of these folks that I've said from the esoteric world and to the so-called Christian world. And that I'm estimating would be like 40 or 50 pages long, and I could probably produce that through Amazon on paperback. Um, so other than that, yeah, John, I would love to come back and, and discuss whatever you want to talk about. Excellent. So if you are a researcher and you want to have the information quickly, you can grab the book right now, The Converging Apostasy, a collection of thematic critiques on Amazon. And if you're a casual reader and you want to wait for the polished version, it'll be coming out soon. <clears throat> so if you've enjoyed our show and you want more information, you can check us out on the web. You can find us at william-branham.org. For an overview of the historical research of William Branham and the healing revivals, you can read Preacher Behind the White Hoods, a critical examination of William Branham and his message, available on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible. <laughs>